0: A quick second um, to say hello. Okay. okay, to say hello to Midrash um, Moriah of this year. Um, God willing, I hope to introduce myself a little, for a little bit longer next week, but um, my name is Sarah. I work for Yeshiva University in Israel. Um, I'm currently in your time also, just down the street. Um, so it's really just a Part of what I do is being able to bring Torah educators um, to the seminaries from Yeshiva University, um, and this year obviously has a new uniqueness to it. Um, and one of the great parts of this of this ability of Zoom is being able to bring Torah educators and in, um at any point here. You know, Rena Koren is an incredible Torah educator in Israel, and if she's not able to be your teacher tonight, then having Rabbi Leibowitz do that, um, I feel like is is a really great opportunity um so now it so it's my uh it's my pleasure and i'll just uh, mention one of uh, sarah's qualifications that she forgot to mention oh, um okay. and that is uh, she is a a proud alumna of madresha moriah shana olive oh. shana bed shana gimel no. shana, all right that's not true but uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean i guess i would still consider myself part of it so i'm like shana like yod olive at this point List myself as Shani Zion. I think I'm <laughs> good point. All right, so as not to uh, take more of Rabbi Leibowitz's uh, precious time. Um, so Shmuel Lech his reputation precedes him. Uh, Rabbi Leibowitz is world famous. I don't know if he knows this, but um, he has fans everywhere, all over the world, uh, because of yutorah.org. All of you should be all over yutorah.org, thousands. I'm not exaggerating, thousands of Torah shirim about every topic under the sun, and also a great thing to be doing in your country session to get any safer and find someone giving a shir on it. And um, several thousand of those, if I'm not mistaken, are Rabbi the shirim. So it is uh, a great pleasure and privilege to be able to hear one of those shirim in, in person and live. Rabbi Leibowitz is the director of the Samicha program at YU. Uh, which produced basically um, half of the faculty of Midrash of Moriah and uh, thousands of other rabbis. Uh, so it's a pleasure that I uh, turn the floor over
1: to Lieber. Thank you so much, thank you so much Rabbi Meir. It's uh, such a pleasure to be able to, uh, to join you uh, this evening, afternoon for me. Um, I uh, just want to uh, highlight for all of the students, all of the Talmudot, that you should recognize just how wonderful your rebellion, your teachers are, um, I don't know if you realize, uh, you must realize by now what an unbelievable Talmud Chachem Rav Meir is. At the, uh, when I was in the base Medrash in YU, there were a few guys that we knew we could look to as the, uh, what we would call the Arisha B'Chabura, the people who were the strongest in learning in the base Medrash. And uh, it was a handful of people that, uh, that, we would, uh, that, we, that were universally admired, and Rav Meir was certainly, uh, certainly one of them. So uh, you should appreciate that special zechus that you have to learn from your outstanding teachers. Also, before I start, if I could just say hello to my cousin Danny Borger. And to our family friend Rachie Gantrell. Hi guys, how you doing? It's great to see you guys. I'll uh, report back to your parents that you guys are doing great. Um, you look good, at least. So, uh, okay, wonderful to see you. Um, I had a little bit of a uh, of, of a dilemma in this uh, in preparing this shir because. Um, actually uh, Mrs. Cohen reached out to me a few times and asked me what the topic is going to be and the real answer was I have no idea because I have very very little experience, very limited experience uh, giving to uh, to young women um, I try to give as much as I can in Stern College, but uh, still very limited experience, and I'm not entirely sure what you will find most interesting, so I decided that I'm just going to go with what normally works, and I'm going to share with you, since this is a halacha class, from what I understand, I'm going to share with you uh, the halacha shaila that I've been working on this week, that there was a question that came up in halacha, and a real life question. I always find that it's always best to learn halacha through real life situations, so that you can see that it's not just something from a book, this is something, these are the questions that we face each and every day. The Torah has what to say about everything, about every, every, uh, every issue in life that, uh, that comes up. So I'm going to share with you actually two Shilohs that I got recently. The, uh, they're somewhat related to each other, so normally I try to take a vote and see which one you'd prefer to talk about, but we're going to talk about both of them, uh, because they're, they're very much related to each other. Uh, one Shiloh was as follows. There is a man that I am friendly with, a wonderful man, a Talmuchach Sadik, who lives in Israel, and he's marrying off a child, one of his uh, younger children, he has many children, and one of his younger children is uh, is getting married, and in the community that he comes from, uh, this is a little bit foreign to me because... Uh, you know, uh, for for uh, better or for worse, uh, I live in America and uh, even in Israel I would imagine uh, when God willing one day I'm able to uh, to make aliyah I probably would not belong to a community where this is a community norm but uh, the community that he comes from, it is customary that the mechutanim, the parents of the chassan and the parents of the kala chip in and buy an apartment for the young couple uh, so that uh, they could stay learning in Kolel and not have to worry about anything. So at the uh, engagement, both Mekhutanim um, agreed to chip in 500,000 shekel apiece to be able to uh, to make a significant down payment on, on an apartment. That was the deal that they made with each other. They're each going to give 500,000 shekel. Um, and uh, they, he, was, he had every intention of uh, fulfilling that, that, that commitment. And then the play, he, had, he had particular money in mind. He had put away some money and it was in a quasi-bank, and you'll see why that's important that it wasn't an actual bank, in a uh, quasi-type of bank kind of institution where he had put this money away, and he was relying on the fact that that money is there, that's the money that he's committing, and that's what he's going to use to help pay for this. And uh, then that bank went bankrupt, or that non-bank went non-bankrupt, whatever you call it. That bank no longer exists, and that money is gone. He doesn't have that money anymore. So now, he doesn't, uh, doesn't know how he's going to pay the 500,000 shekels, so he called him and said, I'm sorry, can't do it. I can't, uh, I can't uh, meet my commitment. Uh, I do have some other investments and some other properties, but I, 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 what I was committing was the money in that bank. I wasn't committing money that I have elsewhere uh, wrapped up in other investments. So I was, I only made the commitment on the basis of the (laughs) of the assumption that I had this money. I don't have the money anymore. It's all gone. Apparently, the place where he kept the money after doing a little more research, I found out, is a kind of place, I don't even know why these places exist or what their role is, but maybe uh, people who are more attuned to how things work in Israel could tell me, but it's a kind of place that's not really a bank, but it's a little more convenient, and it's more local, and you're able to go and get your money more quickly. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how this works. Most people will park a couple of thousand shekel there. This guy parked 500,000. Shekel in, in that uh, in that that place, and now it is all gone. He thinks he might be able to get some of it back, uh, but after lawyers' fees and whatever percentage he can get back, it's not going to be anywhere near what he was supposed to get back. So his. So his question is, is he, uh, is he obligated to come up with a half a million shekel uh, or obligated to sell off one of his other properties in order to be able to come up with a half a million shekel to pay for this? That is question number one. Question number two is from a Talmud of mine who uh, just recently graduated YU. Not a Talmud from the Samicha program, a Talmud from, uh, from the past. I used to teach for 18 years in uh, DRS Yeshiva High School. So, uh, so this boy was a Talmud of mine when he was in 11th grade and he's now graduated college and he's living in an apartment in Washington Heights uh, with, uh, with a, a group of guys. Uh, and there are four people that decided to join in the apartment together with a one-year lease. Uh, for whatever reason, only three of them had their names on the actual lease. The fourth one was living there and committed verbally to stay for the for that year. The thing is, the fourth guy. Uh, is uh, the fourth guy's family lives in Israel and they wanted to be able to travel, the fourth guy wanted to be able to travel back and forth and not have to quarantine uh, despite the New York laws that require quarantine from a red country which at certain points Israel is Uh, so they didn't want to have to quarantine when they came back to New York so the three other apartment mates said listen buddy we have jobs to go to, we have uh, family we want to visit, we can't expose ourselves to someone who should be quarantining and, and risk not being able to go to work for two weeks, risk not We just can't do it, so you're going to have to quarantine, Uh, and uh, we're going to ask you not to stay in the apartment until you quarantine for four to seven days or whatever, 10 to 14 days, whatever the numbers are, and you get a negative test, etc. The fourth person, uh, after hearing that, sent a text message to the other three. He said, sorry, guys, I'm dropping out of the apartment. Uh, I have no no interest in doing this. I'm not, not going to be joining the apartment. So the other guys said, well, wait a second, we've got to pay rent. And we were assuming that the rent is going to get split four ways. And now you're dropping out. Now the rent is only going to be split three ways. They, they want to know if they have a monetary claim against this uh, fourth this fourth guy. So the fourth guy is a bentore. He went to his rabbi, just to add to the story a little bit. He went to his rabbi, and he asked his rabbi, do I have to pay? And the rabbi said, apparently, what, what the guy reports back, he says, I spoke with my family rav." And based off of what he poskined, he said that I should pay for the month of November, for half of the month of December, and that's it. And then for the rest of the year, I am uh, free. I don't have to pay for anything else, so you can keep my security deposit, and I'll Venmo you the, uh, the difference, and that's it. I am done. I am uh, scot-free. So the uh, the other fellows in the apartment said... What's going on? Is that really right? Where where do they even pull that number from? Like a, a month and a half, you could pay for that? Where does that even come from? Both of these Shilas basically boil down, although they're different from each other in certain important ways, what they basically boil down to is a matter of integrity. And to what degree one is obligated to keep their word, to what degree one uh, one's word is becomes law and becomes uh becomes one's obligation. And this is a matter of uh of tremendous uh, uh principle. This is uh we can we can appreciate the integrity that the Torah demands when we look through a sugya like this. You know, I, my first reaction to this was like when he told me like the bank the first Shaila that the bank went uh went bankrupt. I, I thought like Oh my gosh! They don't have FDIC insured. They don't have anything like that in Israel. uh, It turns out I don't know if they do or don't, but it wasn't the bank anyway. There are stories you'll read stories about Kedola Israel. You know that uh, when they got married, their in laws said they were going to support them for ten years to live and learn, and then uh, the in law's business went bad after two years, and they were forced into taking a rabbanus or this or that. Uh, You you have stories like that, but but like as a practical matter, like do they have to pay or do they not have to pay? So I think. over here, what we have is actually two, two separate sugyas. One sugya that relates to both, to both of these shailas, and one sugya that relates to one, but not the other. The one that relates to both of these shailas is to what extent does a verbal commitment to pay money, a verbal commitment to buy something, to, uh, to commit to something, does, to what extent does that obligate a, a person? Uh, there are basically three levels. There's mental commitment, there's verbal commitment, and there's action. You know, sometimes you just decide in your mind that so you see uh, you see someone who looks like they could use. Uh, some tzedakah and you feel bad and you, you decide that you want to uh, you have Rachmanus you want to give tzedakah you've decided in your mind that you're going to do it but you haven't told anybody anything yet you haven't promised anything yet you know uh, it, this happens a friend of mine told me he was walking down Central Avenue and there was uh, and it was a pretty chilly day and there was a guy standing uh, outside for those who are not from the five towns Central Avenue is what it sounds like it's the Central Avenue in uh, in, in, in the five towns where all the stores are so, uh, so the the uh, the, the, this guy it was pretty chilly day the guy seemed like he was really uh, down on his luck he was collecting money so this uh friend of mine told me he was going to go into the store buy a coffee without telling the guy to just buy a coffee a hot coffee at least give the guy a hot drink and come out and give him a uh, a hot drink he went into the store he bought the coffee and and he came out and the guy was gone he, he wasn't there so to what extent does he have any obligation to give that coffee to tzedakah he made a mental commitment that he's going to give it to tzedakah he never said anything he didn't say a word to anybody so that's one level Then a second level is a verbal commitment, that you tell somebody, I'm going to do it. Then a third level is you do some sort of action, but not an actual transaction meaning there's a concept called the Kinyan where something is finalized, where there's an, a, a transaction that is completed, but sometimes you could do some sort of action that actually does not qualify as a halachic transaction, like you pay some money. So uh, paying money, uh, on a drabanan level at least, is not enough to, uh, to affect a transaction. So to what extent is paying money, does paying money obligate the, uh, the party in the Kinyan? So let's take a look at, at all three levels. The, there is a Gemara in the Sakhz Basra. We'll start with mental, with a mental commitment. The Gemara in the Sakhz Basra tells us that a Yeresh someone who genuinely fear has has fear of Hashem, fears Heaven, should be careful uh, to always keep his even his mental commitments. The Gemara says that Halokeach Yerek Minashuk. That if you're going and you're picking vegetables in the market, and you pick up one, no thank you, the other one, anyway, you put it aside, it, all day, you're not kona anything. It's not yours, you're not kona. Once you decide fully that you want to be kona, kona meiser, it's yours, and now you're kona. So says, more. what? Just because a guy decided, he decided that he wants to buy something, so it becomes his? No, it doesn't really become his. But we're talking about a yerei Mayim. and uh, and the Gemara gives an example like Raf Safra, to kiem benafshe Vidover ms that a person even in their heart should speak ms, that even when you're speaking to yourself should speak should speak ms, that a person should should be a person of integrity. Now, one should be careful about this because uh, not every thought, every fleeting thought that a person has, is a commitment in their heart. Uh, I've had uh, many Shilas from people who suffer from OCD in uh, different ways. Um, OCD uh, expresses itself in many different ways and for some it's just that they, they become obsessive about thoughts that go through their heads. That uh, that they think that because if it, uh, that because I thought this it means that I, I took a net there and that I'm committed to do it and that I must do it and if I don't, right? someone told me that he, he, he's pretty sure that he thought in his head that if he does something inappropriate then he's going to have to throw his computer out the window or something like that. So he said I'm not sure if that thought went through my head. Do I have to throw my computer out the window? No, you don't have to throw your peter not every thought that goes through a person's head is necessarily a commitment but we're talking about a person who uh who has a a genuine commitment in but but only mentally so then there's nothing that obligates you but a yorei shamayim someone who fears heaven should should even maintain dover emes bulvavo should even speak speak the truth in their hearts then you move on to the next level next level is a verbal commitment and that the Gemara in Maseches Metziah, has a machlokas whether words constitute what's called mechusre amana. The Gemara tells us that uh, that that if you made a verbal commitment to uh, to buy something. To back out on the transaction, Rav Amar Rav says words is not going to be. We're not going to call you a dishonest person. We're not going to say that you lack integrity for backing out if it was just words. And Rabbi Yochanan Amar yesh bem says that it is a violation of uh, of, of lacking integrity if you uh, if you back out. So that's a machlokas that you have in the Gemara when it comes to action then it gets even worse then the stakes are higher not only not only are you considered someone that's untrustworthy let me be clear when, when we say someone's untrustworthy it means that it's not good for the reputation but if you take the person to Bezdin, there's nothing Bezdin can really do about it you're going to take this guy to Bezdin and say he owes us 500,000 shekel because he promised he gave us his word Bezdin will say it's not right that he didn't uh, that he didn't follow through on the promise but even though we didn't follow through on the promise and it's not right we can't really do anything about it like there's nothing we can do about it it's just not right and then you have even greater than that you have something called uh... uh an, when you did an action you did something you, some money already changed hands or something like that or all the money changed hands then you have what's called mishapara. that Chazal uh, tells us that there's a special curse the Gemara Maseks Bab tells us that there's a special curse on a person who backs out after having done something that's a little short of a kinyan? but they did. They did an action, so that's uh, their Mechabal Mishapara. para means that the same God that uh, punished the Dara Mabul, punished the generation of the Mabul, and the generation of the, the Dara Flaga, and all the uh, the, the terrible things that have that same God should punish uh, people who are not Omed Bidiburam, who don't keep their word. So that's already a little scarier. Amishapara doesn't just mean that you lack integrity, it doesn't just mean that you don't have the level of your Shemayim we wish you had. It means that a person is receiving some sort of curse. So how do we paskin in uh, Shulchan Aruch? So certainly on the last one, there's nothing to talk about. The Shulchan Aruch paskins in Semin reish Talid, and, and Mishpat, that if someone gave money, but he did not yet actually take possession of the item, even though we paskin on a Drabana level, the kenyan didn't work, uh, if he tries to back out, or either side tries to back out, whether it be the buyer or whether it be the seller, uh, then he's going to be chayiv Kabal mishapara. He's going to get this terrible curse that's going to uh, befall him or that's going to be placed upon him. We'll have to discuss some of the details of how that works. What about a verbal commitment? So now it gets a little trickier. Says the Shulchan Aruch, if you just made a verbal commitment... He should keep his word. One should keep their word when they made a verbal commitment. If you're back out, whether you're the buyer or the seller, you may not get this curse called Mishapara, it's someone who's lacking integrity, and the Chachamim are not happy with you so uh, you, you, when, uh, when the Chachamim uh, give you, you uh, a rating on how you're doing as a Jew they give you a little frowny face you know, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not happy with the way that, you are, uh, that, that, that you're operating if you don't keep your word if it was only a verbal commitment but, but all of this just assumes that a person is just backing out for no reason whatsoever what if a person has a really good reason to change their mind Tell you a story that happened with me. I uh, I used to live in a uh, a village called Cedarhurst, which is uh, right in between uh, Lawrence and Woodmere. Some of you may be familiar with it. And uh, we had a home in Cedarhurst, and we had to sell our house in Cedarhurst uh, because we wanted to move to North Woodmere because uh, we wanted to start a shul with a group of um, uh, wonderful uh, young families, um, uh, the uh, the Gantraus and others. And uh, and 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 we had to sell our house in order to uh, to move to North Woodmere. And we had no idea, we bought the house, I'm going to pick numbers, but uh, these numbers are not necessarily accurate. We bought the house in Cedars three years earlier for like, let's say $450,000. Three years later, three years, we said, you know what, let's ask $700,000 for the house. And a bidding war ensued. There were people that came in and saying seven hundred thousand, no problem, I'll buy it today. Someone else came in, I'll pay seven hundred twenty thousand dollars. We couldn't believe like how much the price went up. Unfortunately, they had also gone up in north windmere so it didn't help us that much. But we couldn't believe how much the price up. So one person, first person came in and said, "We'll give, uh, we'll we'll pay seven hundred thousand dollars for it." We said, "Okay, we'll we'll take that. We can work with that." And then. Uh, we said, we're going to keep showing the house, though, just in case. You know, have a, and then someone else came in and offered us $725,000. And someone else came in and offered $730,000 for, for the house. So, uh, so we didn't say anything to the accepted offer. We just we were going to go with it. Uh, the person that, that, that accepted the offer um, called us back and said, you know, we were thinking about it. We were looking at the house. There are certain things that need fixing. We'd like you to knock $5,000 off the price because of the things that need fixing so right away we took that as an opportunity we said oh well wait a second if you're not if are you backing out of the price that we agreed upon and they said yes we want to knock it down five thousand dollars Ooh, you've you've just backed out on the price we agreed upon so we could run and grab the seven hundred thirty thousand dollars we can go and grab the uh the higher price so we were within our rights probably to do that because they had backed out first let's say they didn't back out first you know, when, when we accepted the offer, we didn't know that the prices were gonna go crazy and that we were gonna get an offer of $730,000. So to back out at that point would have been Probably a violation of mechusra mana, because uh, of course you, you know the, the the numbers might change. The price didn't really change. It's just that some people might be willing to pay a little bit more. That would have been a mechusra mana. That would have been a lack of uh, a, a lack of of, of of honesty, a lack of integrity. Remember, I was telling, I was asking Rav Shechter Shlita uh, when this was all happening. I was asking him what uh, what he thought I was entitled to do, um, and uh, given the situation. And uh, and and he said, and after the conversation, he told me that once they backed out, I could probably back out also. He said, but let me guess, uh, you took the seven hundred thousand dollars, and you told them you're not going to knock off five thousand dollars from the price, but the seven hundred thousand dollars. I said, yeah. He goes, okay, good. That's the right thing to do. Meaning, there's always a higher level. There's always more. There's always better that you can uh, that you can do. One can always uh, be more honest, but the. Uh, Strictly speaking, let's say something major changes. The Chassam Sofra has a tshuva. There was a guy that agreed to buy something, a particular object he wanted to buy. And then, that, let's say, whatever it was, he needed a car really badly because uh, he was going to start commuting by car, he needed to drive into the city, so he needed a car really badly. And then he he, he, he promised to buy the car, he made a, a verbal commitment to buy the car, and then before he had a chance to actually acquire the car, Uh, his uncle died and left him a car. So the exact car that he was going to buy, he just got the Yerusha. Can can he back out now? Because something changed. He's not just backing out. Something significant changed in the picture. So the Chassam Sofer discusses it. The Ramah actually discusses this, and the Ramah quotes two opinions. But the Chassam Sofer discusses this, and he says that a significant enough change... You may back out, which is interesting because the Ramah sounds like you may not, but the Chassam Sofer says that if it's a significant enough change, a person is allowed to back out of, uh, of that agreement. Or the Minchas Yitzchak has a tshuva, that there was a guy, that, uh, a couple that had a baby boy, and they uh, reserved a moel, uh, they tried to reserve a certain moel to do the bris, a moel that they wanted very much to, uh, to do the bris. And uh, the moel said, I'm sorry, I'm busy that day, I can't do it. And then they reserved another model to do the bris. Then the first model calls up and says, I just realized I'm not busy. I could do it that day. Are they allowed to back out of the agreement to hire the second moel? So, who you decide to have do a bris on your child is a pretty significant uh, decision. Usually, it's something that people are pretty mucked about. They want to get the uh, the right person to do the bris. There are different practices in terms of. We're not going to get into the details now of uh, some and that will do you know uh, do things a little bit differently. Uh, so, so maybe a significant uh, decision. So, Minchas Yitzchak thinks that that's a significant enough change that in fact you are. allowed to back out so now let's talk about this fellow over here this uh, let's take the first Shaila this fellow committed 500,000 shekel is he allowed to back out from his commitment of 500,000 shekel well something changed something major changed it wasn't that the price you know uh, that the price of the apartment changed or anything like that something more major changed. he was relying on the fact that there was money put away somewhere and that that money was going to be there that has changed so probably even from a verbal commitment standpoint, he is not obligated to, uh, to pay the 500,000 shekel. He is not what we would call a m'chusser uh, amana if he backs out on this, uh, on this agreement. Um, th- there is a, uh, a- another issue over here, and that is that the people that were going to be the recipients of this apartment were a young couple, now you may not realize this and uh you know in in God willing in a couple of years uh when uh, all of you get married uh, you know, you're, you're probably, uh, many of you probably will still be relying on your parents for some, uh, some support or your in-laws for some level of support or you will need a little bit of help, at least with the laundry or little things here and there. Hopefully till you get on your feet. You know, it's very normal for uh, for a young couples to meet, need a little bit of help till they figure out how to manage all of their expenses. So this young couple in particular, the guy was going to be learning in Kolel, uh, the the girl was going to figure something out, probably to make some money, but certainly not enough to support themselves. They, there's no way they could afford an apartment on their own. They are what we call aniyim. They are poor. And when you're making a commitment to poor people, that's an entirely... Again, they may not think of themselves as poor. They grew up in fine families, always had food on the table, and never had an issue uh, with money before. But the fact that their parents have money doesn't mean that they're not poor. Meaning they are now adults and they, uh, their parents have no responsibility, no obligation to support them. So they are poor. And when the parents commit money to them, that's tzedakah that the parents are giving to them. How could it be tzedakah? It's their own relatives, their own flesh and blood. Yes, that's the, that's the highest the, the highest priority in tzedakah. The highest priority in tzedakah is to give to those who are closest to you. You know, that's uh, going to be a question, God willing, one day you should all be in a position where you're able to be givers and you're able to figure out how to prioritize where you're giving your tzedakah. And one of the things you have to look at is what is closest to me, not necessarily physically closest to me. Rav Shachter often points out that if I have a yeshiva that's uh, or a shul, that's down the block for me, but I never set foot in there, I never set my kids there, I never dove in there, but uh, there's a yeshiva uh, I, I learned in a yeshiva called Karim and in Eretz Yisrael, but, so there's a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael that, that I actually did go to, or a yeshiva university I actually did go to, so then that's called Karov that's called closer to me, whatever is is is, uh, is, has, has, is closer to your heart, whatever uh, is uh, more, w- relates to you, is uh, is, is considered the, the greater obligation in Tzedakah so certainly that's true, and it's, it's initially said when it comes to people, the relatives that are closest to you, that's the highest priority in tzedakah. So now that it's a tzedakah issue, it might change the picture a little bit because tzedakah could be a little different. The Mishnah Mishach Kidushin tells us that even though words are not really a final commitment uh, necessarily when it comes to monetary transactions, when it comes to tzedakah the Mishnah says amiral gavala if you say that you're going to give something to the Beis HaMidrash it's as if you've already uh, done a, a, completed a transaction with a with a regular person meaning and and the Torah writes that it's not only for the Beis HaMidrash tzedakah is also called hakdesh and it's subject to that same rule I know tzedakah the Torah writes in your der simran Ches, know that tzedakah you take a neder to tzedakah you can't back out on a neder to tzedakah so once it's a neder to tzedakah then it becomes much trickier if you actually verbalize the commitment you know what? there's even a discussion whether a mental commitment to tzedakah makes a difference if someone mentally commits to give tzedakah there's a discussion it's a machlokas rishonim whether a mental commitment to tzedakah makes a difference because the Gemara uh, makes a distinction between chulin, uh, something that's just mundane uh, money spent, where machshava is meaningless, where where mental commitment is meaningless, and kachem and truma, where it's meaningful. So uh, the the rush writes in chuva, the Beis Yosef quotes this that tzedakah counts as chulin. That a mental commitment doesn't mean anything. A machshava alone, without verbally saying anything, is not in that different tzedakah. But the Beis Yosef calls them Mordechai and Rabbi and others say that no, tzedakah is like kachim, and even a mental commitment is considered a neder to uh, to tzedakah. The Rama quotes both of these opinions. He says, uh, and the Iker, the main uh, opinion, is that really you're obligated; that really you should be chayiv, even with a uh, with a mental uh, commitment. To uh, to tzedakah. so uh, so that's uh, that's pretty significant. Certainly, if a person said, "I'm going to give five hundred thousand dollars to this young couple, to uh, these this poor young couple," which which essentially is what they are, then uh, then certainly that's a mental commitment to uh, to tzedaka. So now, given that, uh, okay, maybe you don't have because something significant changed. But what about his commitment to tzedaka? Is he obligated to give based on his commitment to tzedaka? So it would seem that, he's, that he has what's called a neder. How do you get rid of a neder? Is there any way to get rid of a neder? If you've taken a neder, you don't want to mess around with nadarim. You know, right before Yom Kippur, we do hataras Nadarin and uh, we have kol nidre, like there's a lot of emphasis on nadarim right before the most important day of the year. You know why that is? Because the Gemara tells us Avon when people sin on account of Nadarim, Banim the children the children would die die young because of the avera of the parents not keeping Nadarim. Nidarim are very, very serious. We have to be we often think, oh words don't really matter. Oh, words come out of our mouth. Words matter not only in a and hara kind of way, where words matter, where that we're used to hearing, hopefully over the course of our lives, how how important it is to be careful about what we say about other people, not only in uh, in an ana'as devarim kind of way, in a way that we uh, that we should be so careful not to say. Hurtful and harmful words to other people. Words matter in an integrity kind of way, in an honesty kind of way, in a commitment kind of way. The, uh, the, there's even a, a concept called Birchas uh, Hedyot, alte tei Kala or Killas Hedyot, the Gemara says, in the Psalms both of them, I'll take Kala That you should not take even a bracha or a klala, even of a Hedyot. Rav Shachter often points out that the proper translation of the word Hedyot is idiot. The word idiot comes from the word Hedyot. It means even a nobody, idiot, not, not meaning the way we use it, meaning like a nobody. Like uh, there's a coin gadol and a coin hediot. It doesn't mean that the coin hediot is an idiot. It means that he's, he's not special. He's not a special coin, he's just a regular coin. So even just a regular person gives you a bracha, you, you have to take it seriously. You have to take such a bracha seriously. Uh, when when a, even just a regular person gives you a bracha, a regular person gives you a klala. You know, there's a fascinating chuva of Moshe Feinstein wrote. Someone once challenged Rav Moshe. I don't know who these people were that asked these kinds of questions to Gedole Torah like Rav Moshe Feinstein, but someone once asked Rav Moshe Feinstein, who do you think you are that you're giving brachas to people? You know that people will come and they ask for a bracha, and you give a bracha to them like, why do you think your bracha matters so much? Like, why would you give a bracha to somebody? So Rav Moshe said, "I, I really don't think I'm anybody, and I don't think my brachas are any more effective than anybody else's. But the Gemara says, he said two things. First of all, the Gemara says that even the bracha of an idiot means something. So, okay, so I'm at least an idiot. So bracha uh, of an idiot should mean something. So, uh, so if someone asks me for a bracha, I don't uh, hold back. He says, second of all, I know that when people come and they ask me for a bracha, they're asking me for a bracha because they think I'm someone special. Because, the, because I happen to have a job that I'm a Rosh Yeshiva of a Yeshiva of MTJ of so they think I'm someone special just because I'm a Rosh Yeshiva but but I know that I'm not really special, it just happens to me that I'm a Rosh Hashiva, but I'm not really special. But he said, so I've tried to tell people, he said, when they ask me for a bracha, I tell them, no, you're mistaken, I'm really not a special person, I'm really not not a tzaddik, and you shouldn't be asking me for a bracha. He said, but it backfires, because then what they say is, oh, what an anav he is, how humble he is, that not only is he a tzaddik and he's a chacham, but he's also so humble. So what am I supposed to do if they're asking me for a bracha? I can't can't talk them out of it, because then they just talk about how humble I am. So, So I have to to give them the bracha. So I give them the bracha and I rely on the fact that it's a bir chesedot. But with all of these things, you know, the Gemara is an expression, bris kru solis vasayim, that words are, are, are a covenant, a special covenant with God. We have to be so, so careful about how we use our words. So when, when a person takes a neder, that is a very serious thing. You know, the Gemara Masechus Ksubas tells us in Perich uh, Hamadir that if, uh, if, if, uh, if, if a couple is married, and one of them is destroying the marriage. Uh, let's say uh, the wife is doing something that is harmful to the marriage, that is destroying the marriage. When they get divorced, the husband will not have to pay her ksuba. If they're just not getting along, or they're getting uh, divorced for other reasons, but she's not destroying the marriage, then she gets a ksuba. So what's called destroying the marriage? I would think if she's, uh, the husband is a very firm guy, and the wife decides, that's it, I'm not being Shomer Shabbos anymore. I would think that would be destructive to a marriage. Now, she can do all the averas, I mean, she can't do all the averas she wants, but if she does all the averas she wants, it's not considered a destruction of the marriage. Even if she's not religiously observant anymore, as long as she feeds him kosher food, uh, it's not considered a destruction of the marriage. What's considered a destruction of the marriage? There are a number of examples, but one of them is, if she's a nadranis, she takes too many nadarin, because one who's not careful with their words because of failures in the world of nadarim, the, the consequences are very great, and that will destroy the whole family life. So we, we take words very seriously. So when you have a neder, how, how do you get rid of the neder? What do you do to take care of the neder? So you, you, you're probably all familiar with the concept of hataras nadarim, or a she'ela on a nadar. You try to undo the neder, But you'll you'll note that when you read the passage of hataras nadarim, you say that you are mischarit, that you regret having taken the nether, that you wish you never would have made that commitment. You don't want to have made that commitment. It was an error in judgment to have made that commitment. So in order to get rid of a nether, you need one of two things. You need either a e charata, like an actual regret on the commitment, or what's called a pesach, that something that if, it, if I would have known that this would have happened, then I never would have, uh, would, have, would have taken the neder. If I would have known that uh, what, what was to follow, or what was already in motion, that was soon to follow, I never would have taken, would have taken the neder. The most famous example of that is the Gemara Massachusetts tells us the story of Rabbi Akiva. Right? When Rabbi Akiva uh, got married to his wife, his father-in-law said, uh, I'm not going to support some ama'aretz. He's, uh, he, so he said all, he was a very rich man, and he took a neder that his, that his daughter and son-in-law can't get any benefit from, uh, from his money and then uh, Rabbi Kiva went to learn for many, 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 many years and he comes back with 24,000 Talmidim and uh, the law says asks the Shailah to this visiting Rabbi who comes back with 24,000 Talmidim what do I do? I have this neder, and I would like to uh, undo the neder. and he said well if you would have known that he'd become a Tamil chacham, would you have taken the nether? He said, a Mishnah I feel Even if he would learn anything, I wouldn't have taken the neder. If, he would have, if I would have known that he would learn anything. So uh, that's it. That's a Pesach for the neder. If you would have known, would you have taken this neder? So the way to get rid of this neder is if you can say for certain that had I known that this was going to happen or this was about to happen, I never would have taken this neder in the first place. So here's where the question gets tricky. Again, going back to the first question, the guy committed 500,000 shekels to the apartment. So he said, amana? is it a lack of, uh, you know, uh, does he owe the money? Is he, is he untrustworthy? No, he's not untrustworthy because the, uh, the commitment, uh, something significant had changed after he made that commitment. But what about the neder? He made a neder for tzedaka. A neder for tzedaka is binding. So, so how do you get it out of a neder for a mitzvah for tzedakah? So you need to establish that he never would have taken this neder had he known that he was going to lose all this, all of this money. And that's a very tricky thing to establish. Because uh, from what the little research I did, I said, of course, he, my, my initial reaction was... If he only committed the money because he thought he had it, uh, there 's no way he would have committed the money that he doesn't have. Who on earth would commit money that they don 't have? But then I was told that in this particular uh, community uh, it 's mice and bahoum that uh, people all the time commit money that they don't have. They try to marry off their kids and then they knock on my door on Sunday nights and uh, you know, and ask for, for money to, to fulfill those commitments but, uh, but they, they all the time uh, because there's no, there's no other way to marry their kids off. So they commit money that they don't have all the time so are, are we so certain that he would not have committed the money had he not plus he, he has a track record he had a, a lot of older children that he married off already how many of them did he commit money for all of them if so then in all likelihood he would have committed money for. he would have found a way to commit money for this child as well. So it's a very, very tricky thing to establish. There's no real easy way of knowing. There's no easy way of knowing. The person happens to be an extremely honest person, as I mentioned. He's, uh, he's an Ehrlich person, he's a Tzadik, he's a, a Tamil he's all of those things, and, and therefore you have to take him at his word. So, at the end of the day, what are we passing? So, first of all, when a question like this comes to me, uh, I don't know uh, if you guys know, like, levels of Talmidei Chachamim, but, you know, this is not a shayla for me. This is a shayla for, like, big people. So, uh, I told them right off the bat, um, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to bring it to Rav Shechter or to Rav Asher Weiss or someone like that, and I'll just tell you what they say. Like I'm, I'm not. They said, okay, good. We trust those people, uh, and we trust you to be uh, uh, an emissary to uh, to bring the shilu. So that, that's what I did. Rav Asherai said he needs more time to think about it. He uh, didn't want to deal with it. Um, Rav though thought that this is a neder that's stuck, up, and you can be Shoal on the neder. You can undo the nether, if there's a pesach. If he would have promised anyway, then there's no way out. But if he was not going to promise it anyway, then then he does have a way out. I said to Rav but he has other other investments. Should he sell those other investments in order to provide? For, uh, for, for this couple. He wanted to sell the other investments and split them evenly among all of his children. But now that he has this commitment, does he should he sell the other investments? He said, that's the right thing to do, but you can't obligate him to do that. It's the correct thing to do, it's the proper thing to do, but you can't obligate him to do that. So that was uh, that was the psak that, uh, that we gave in that case. What about the other case, the four fellows with, uh, with the apartment? And uh, so that, you don't have the nedel tzedakah issue. It's, it's purely a mukhusra issue that here's a person that committed to do something, and, uh, and as a result of his commitment, three other people signed a lease. They acted based on his commitment. I would think that that's at least the mechus that is that uh, lacking in integrity if he tries to back out. But one important point. I, I mentioned in that second shaila that the guy came back, he said, I asked my rabbi, and my rabbi told me that this is all I have to do. And, and that's a good... Um, gut reaction that when you're not sure what to do to ask a Shiloh it's a good thing to do but it's something to keep in mind that particularly when dealing with monetary law when you're dealing with with money it's not between you and God it's between you and another person for one person to go and this happens all the time and you have a monetary dispute with someone, and one person goes and asks that rabbi, the other person goes and asks that rabbi, and each rabbi who only heard one side of the story says, oh, you're totally right, uh, yeah, you should, uh, you know, and, and we'll give them a sack That's really not appropriate. The right way to deal with, unless your rabbi is being extra on you, the, the right way to deal is that you both go together to either a Beisdin or to a rabbi who will, uh, who will handle the situation. That's ultimately what they did, because they realized that it was an error to go and ask uh, separate rabbis to go together and handle things in a way that that involves great level of integrity and honesty and transparency. And that's the way we deal with it, with these things. So at the end of the day, what, what, what's, the, uh, what's the point? Well, the point is we learned uh, some interesting halachos. But aside from that, there's a theme to all of these halachos. And that's what we, we tried to highlight along the way, is the power of words. Just how powerful words can be um, in, in, in terms of Isurim for sure, violations of the Lashon Hara and the Darim. But we always uh, believe in Judaism that, uh, that, that the power of good is stronger than the power of evil. tova And if words can be such a powerful force in the negative, that uh, an that can make a person commit, because he said words, he now has to pay a half a million shekel, right? That words can do something like that? Can you imagine what words can do in the positive? The, uh, what we're able to accomplish when we, uh, when we say an encouraging word to somebody and especially, especially, um, you know, I, I, I have such great admiration for all of you that uh, that you're, you're in Eretz Yisrael, you're learning Torah Hashem, you're uh, and, and, and under less than ideal circumstances, normally it's the most ideal circumstances, but this year, because of the pandemic and because of the lockdown, I'm so happy for you guys that you were able to go out for Shabbos last, last week. But, uh, but, but, but it, it's, it's, you don't have the freedom that you would normally have. And, uh, and, and just recognize, take a look around. And uh, I'm sure that there are some, uh, some of your friends maybe are struggling a little more than they normally would uh, when they're in Israel for the year. And just an encouraging word here and there just to make sure to take notice of other people. That's always the first thing in Beit Adon is just to notice other people. I just read in a biography from Rav Shlomo Freifeld that Rav Shlomo Freifeld was the founder of Rosh Yeshiva, Bishivas Sharyashiv and he said that, uh, you know, there's a minhag, that if someone uh, greets you, you should greet them with a better greeting. Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach used to have the practice that if someone would say, a good tavach to him, a good week, a good tavach, he would say, a good yard. He would say back, you know, like better, like a a good yard. Where does that come from? So Freifeld explained, because you owe them more than just the greeting they gave you. Because they gave you more than a greeting. They gave you that they noticed you, that they took notice of you. And, and when you're just responding, you didn't really take notice, you're just reacting. So you owe them a bigger bracha than they gave you. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something worthwhile to, to, you know, to, to contemplate. Uh, you have the ability to, to perform bin adam Lachavero on a very high level, more than you normally would. Because there's just natural struggles going on going on around you, I'm sure I have no doubt that Medrashet is doing everything for you to make it as enjoyable and fun and uplifting as uh, as possible. Uh, at the end of the day, the reality is the, rea- the reality that you haven't had the freedom that you had. Make sure you're there for each other. Make sure you're always there to encourage each other and to say positive words to each other and uh, to be mechazik each other. And I wish all of you a wonderful and successful year of great great Hatzlacha in your Torah learning, and your Torah growth, in your year of Shemaim. And again, enjoy all of your wonderful uh, Rebbeim and, uh, and teachers, and uh, have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you so much, Rabbi Lee Woods. And uh, please catch up